You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience here at the Westwood One Podcast Network on Wednesday, April 4th. When April appears to be like March, the winds are howling 50 miles an hour outside my home. So if we do get cut off, I will have to repeat this podcast once again, even though I've already had to repeat this podcast due to our technical problems here. Yes, I am still stuck behind the times, not understanding how to use a Mac when my seven-year-old knows how to use it better than me, but I fixed our technical problems. So last week, when we meant to have Dr. John Lilly on our program to discuss the government's misdiagnosis of the opioid crisis, which is really an illicit drug overdose crisis prompted by open borders, um, we did have to redo the podcast. We're thankful that we're going to have him on today. But before we bring him on, just wanted to kind of set the table here from our discussion earlier this week about immigration and you know what the president can do unilaterally to secure the border. We have a two-part piece, at least two parts, maybe three parts coming out on how the president is not bound to just allow in anyone and grant them asylum or refugee status to the so-called unaccompanied alien children, the UACs, and how he has inherent Article II presidential constitutional powers to protect our sovereignty even without statute. Um, so this notion that he has to wait for Congress is nonsense. And, you know, while this caravan heading our way from Central America looks like it's disbanding, that was always a political stunt. This is broadly what happens every day anyway, but you don't hear about it. It's without a political stunt. And this is what is clearly, and now it's clear as day, um, if you see our four-part series, which we're going to link to in our show notes, our four-part series on how the UACs caused this crisis. Um, you know, since we spoke last about this, data just came out from ICE noting that 21% of all the gang members that have been swept up in the recent task force by the Trump administration to, you know, apprehend MS-13 gangsters, 21% of them were UACs that came in circa 2013, 2014, 2015, which prompted this insane 400, 600% increase in, um, in drug overdoses, the insane supply. We connect all the dots. And interestingly enough, as I noted in my previous piece, Texas DPS actually warned about this, that MS-13 now became the drug distributors for the drug cartels. So it's no coincidence that the rise in gang activity from transnational Mexican gangs coincides with the insane, um, both both the massive distribution supply, but also the en- enrichment of the drug cartels. Because guess what? When you have these caravans, guess who gets paid? The drug cartels. They control the smuggling routes. So we have more information in these articles than you're going to want to know from. Um, and I just wanted to note in general that 
the perversion of our priorities on what we do with our borders, homeland security, what we do with our military, and how the government goes out of its way to literally make night into day and day into night when it comes to illegal aliens. Anything, you know, there shouldn't be an inch of our soil that is, that is not secured and stabilized. Yet we refuse to stabilize our own border because of the implications to our Mexican friends and the immigration open borders priorities. Nothing gets in the way. Identity fraud, we ignore it. Um, safety and security, we ignore it. Let's send our troops to Afghanistan and Syria. Oh, but the minute Trump mentions troops on the border, that's insane. That's not what a military is for. Well, actually, that, that that's kind of exactly what the, what a military is for. It's not to referee Sunni Shia civil wars and tip the ba- balance of power back and forth. Oh, get rid of the Sunnis. Oh no, darn it, that empowered Iran. Now we got to go after Iran. Oh, but that's going to empower. You know, yeah, that that's the nonsense. And look, Trump's intuition, by the way, is pretty good on it. Um, he does want to pull out of Syria and put our troops on the border, but sadly, I'm not seeing that happening. Mattis looks like he's keep keeping us there forever, aimlessly with no no agenda. And, you know, I'm just thinking that when it comes to tens of thousands of people killed by drugs in America, and I don't mean the baseline, as we're going to discuss with Dr. John Lilly um, in in just a couple of minutes. I don't mean that, you know, 30, 40 years that we've always had drugs. I mean the insane increase that came in with the UACs because of DACA, because of the suspension of interior enforcement, sanctuary cities, and the suspension of border enforcement, 2013, 2014. We're ignoring that at a policy level, except for Trump and rhetoric, who's been pretty on message, but then he veers off message, and then you know his administration does all sorts of things. But we then focus solely on healthcare as the drug problem. Um, you know, it reminds me, just thinking of uh, Deuteronomy 28, when God warns the Israelites of the impending curse if they don't follow his ways. Uh, He says, the Lord will strike you with insanity, with blindness, and with bewilderment. You will grope at midday as the blind man gropes in the dark, and you will be unsuccessful in your ways. You will be only oppressed and robbed all the days, and no one will save you. I mean, we are groping around for, for the purpose of obfuscating the obvious truth that any person who is not blind or any even a blind person could see it. And, and what is it that is taking us over? Um, you look you know, later on in the chapter there. It's pretty amazing. Verse 43, the stranger who is among you will rise above you higher and higher while you will descend lower and lower. He will lend to you, but you will not lend to him. He will be at the head while you will be at the tail. And that's what we have here with illegal alien supremacism is so strong that we are willing to fabricate an entire different diagnosis and causation of a tremendous epidemic in this country in order to ensure that the open borders agenda is not implicated. Um, you know, what we're doing is is sort of akin to, uh, gosh, it, it, it's like, um, imagine a bunch of arsonists just going and setting a forest fire. And government comes in and says, wait a minute, what the heck? We got a fire crisis. Let's go and start regulating and even barring the supply of, stone, of stoves to personal homes. Well, you know, there's accidents with fire and homes. You know, it does happen. And, 
you know, I, I could point to stories about it. So uh, fire, there's a problem with fire, right? Well, let's get rid of the fire. And then meanwhile, doing nothing about sending the, you know, firefighting planes to just put out the forest fire and apprehend the bad dudes doing it. Instead of going after, um, you know, stoves or heating systems in your home um, because, well, accidents do happen sometimes. Uh, so therefore, uh, we, we, must, we must clamp down on, on basic supply. That is exactly what the government is doing right now. By taking a crisis that is driven above, to the crisis levels, all from illicit drugs from open borders, fentanyl and heroin, and now some other stuff, while meanwhile taking morphine out of hospitals, not just outpatient prescriptions with a bunch of people that are not, you know, doctors that are not irresponsible, patients that are not irresponsible, they're not becoming addicted, they're not abusing it, they're not piddling on the streets. They're going to be in a tremendous pain, but not just them, even inpatient post-op surgeries. There's restrictions now so severe that there's now, um, you know, really, really severe shortages in many, many hospitals. You know, our buddies at AAPS just put out a press release um, bashing the, uh, you know, all the middlemen in healthcare, how they get kickbacks and cronyism and they're inflating the, the cost of drugs and they're creating a shortage. But there's also a shortage because of all the federal and state regulations now on opioids. To set the table, um, you know, we're going to bring in Dr. John Lilly because I, I feel you guys need to hear from a medical professional, from the medical perspective, why this at its core is not a medical problem other than, you know, when you have cars invented, you have car accidents. So there are going to be a certain number of people that will abuse prescriptions or doctors that are, you know, malvolent medicine men and peddle, you know, drugs needlessly like like Mexican drug cartels are no different than that. Um, you know, where I'm, where I'm from in Baltimore, we had the Baltimore police. There was a unit where there were a couple of corrupt cops that were drug smuggling. So, you know, do we disband the police? Um, no, you know, but anyway, John Lilly has been uh, really patient with me. I was supposed to have him on last week. I had technical issues. He's come back again. He's a family physician with Mercy Clinic um, in Springfield, Missouri, uh, at their East Sunshine Clinic. He's also involved in public policy as well, so he gets kind of both perspectives. He's the president of the Locke and Smith Foundation, where he closely monitors Everything that goes on, all the bills that pass out of the Missouri legislature uh, to inform citizens who are often, you know, as little as they know about Congress, they know even less about what goes on legislatures. Great um, institution there. We're going to link to his information websites. And with no further ado, hey, Dr. Lilia, you're on the phone. I am here. Thank you for having me on. Well, thanks for coming back, and, and, and sorry about last week. Uh, thanks for being so patient, and sorry for that long intro. I just, you know, when I get on this topic, I've become so passionate because um, there's there's just so much misinformation. I don't know where to start, so I'm just going to randomly start here. The Nevada Department of Health and Human Resources, among the many states that I've seen put out data, very recent data, as recent as, as just a couple months ago, demonstrating the nature of what people are overdosing from and why. Um, they have a report 
that echoes what I'm seeing in every other state. And, the, and, and Nevada is pretty much one of the worst states in the West. Most of the bad states are in the East or the Midwest, Ohio, uh, West Virginia. Um, but among the states in the West, Nevada is pretty, pretty bad. They're hit pretty hard with the overdose epidemic. They, their, their version of HHS put out a report recently that said the following. Opioid-related deaths in Nevada have decreased slightly since 2010 decreased slightly since 2010 the epidemic started in 2013 so it decreased before the epidemic even started but the number of fatal heroin overdoses has nearly tripled since then you put out a journal article recently in aaps journal the the journal of uh, american physicians and surgeons and we'll link to in show notes showing how the the federal government when they say there's a drug epidemic overdose epidemic and there is an epidemic but then they talk about prescriptions as if it's a doctor healthcare problem isn't it clear that this is all an illicit drug problem it is it is now an illicit drug problem this goes and to understand this you have to start with how drugs are classified. And the opioid prescription medication is classified three in three categories. One is the, the ones that come from poppy seeds, natural and semi-synthetic opioids that are the ones that we use in the medical profession. It's morphine, hydrocodone, oxycodone. Those are, uh, they are semi-synthetic they, have, they are in one category. The second category is methadone, and, which is a synthetic. It does not need poppy seeds to manufacture it. And it's by itself in the second category. The third category is other opioids that are, that are synthetic ones, but not uh, methadone. And those include fentanyl. There's also uh, meparidine, which is Demerol and a lot of others, but fentanyl is the big one. And fentanyl as a prescription has been in a, it is very potent and it has been in a uh, patch that gets the pain medicine from the patch through the skin. Historically, and I got interested in this because I've been, Missouri is the one state that does not have a statewide prescription drug monitoring program. And I've been watching this for several years, and I've gone up the last few years and testified against the prescription drug monitoring program on the state level. And I watch the CDC has a database. It's called CDC Wonder. that has a whole lot of information, but one of the things you can do is look at multiple causes of death. You can go on that database and break it down by state, by county, all different kinds of ways and how the, what is on the death certificate. Several years ago, I started watching it, and I noticed that the death rate for opioids kept going up, even though more and more states had a prescription drug monitoring program. Well, it got up, and it, it was slowly increasing for a while. This last year, the new numbers came out in December, and I looked, and by the National Institute on Drug Abuse's definition of prescription opioids, they went up 44% from 2015 to 2016. I started looking at this and I said, how? 
did this go up so high? Especially when prescriptions are plummeting. When the number of pres- the number of written prescriptions are going down, why is the death rate due to prescription drugs going up? I start and I looked at the three different uh, the breakdown of the three different categories. The first one, the traditional opioids, had been going up a little bit. The second one, methadone, had actually been going down. The third one was going in a more or less straight, slightly upward level until just a few years ago, and it started skyrocketing. <laughs> and I came across a uh, the CDC publishes the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, and I came across one from 2016 that was talking about illicit fentanyl starting in 2014. Illicit fentanyl from Mexico and uh, China had been started surging, and the deaths had gone up dramatically just from 2013 to 2014. So I emailed the CDC Wonder and said, under this one category, it's called T40.4, it's an ICD-10 code, International Classification for uh, Diseases. But under that code, fentanyl is under that, and I asked them, can you differentiate between prescription fentanyl and illegal fentanyl that's coming from out of the <laughs> country? And, and they texted, uh, emailed me back and said, no, you cannot tell. We All we do is go by death certificates, and there's nothing on the death certificate that says whether or not it's uh, prescription or illegal fentanyl. And so it kind of hit me. I said, wait a minute. This huge spike that they're seeing is due to fentanyl, and it it looks like it is all prescription. So I did a kind of a crazy thing. I used my common sense, and I took the curve for fentanyl and backed it down to 2013, and it came out a pretty straight line from 2000 to 2013. I extended that three more years and said, okay, let's assume this is all prescription fentanyl. And I did a straight line, let the computer do a regression line, figured out how many of those deaths were prescription fentanyl and said, okay, above that, everything is, I am assuming, is going to be illicit fentanyl. And it turns out that in by my calculation, the illicit fentanyl went from 2,100 deaths in 2014 to almost 6,000 in 2015 to 15,600 in 2016. So that's been tripling yep. every year. And in 2017, and it's likely higher, much higher. Yes, yes. And the National Institute on Drug Abuse had a... On their website, they had a bunch of figures last September, and they have never updated it. And I keep thinking, why don't they update it? I, I think they do not want to, or they either can't. I thought it was pretty simple the way I did it. <laughs> uh, and they either don't want to or can't figure out how to even give an estimation of 
the illicit fentanyl death. They, they, they just can't figure it out. And what's interesting is, so it's funny, my my approach, I got into this from the border angle. You got into it from, you know, as, as a physician, you're seeing they're clamping the hell down on prescriptions. They have a monitoring program. It's going to limit liberty. Uh, I want to talk about that later, your concerns with where that's headed, um, what they're actually doing. I was noticing what the actual cause was. You, you mentioned 2013. That's in the news now with the UACs. Literally, as we're, as we're recording now, Secretary, Secretary of DHS Nielsen is giving a press conference on what's going on at the border and saying that you know there's a new surge, but the massive surge was started in 2013. That's when we got the drugs in, and I'm thinking like. You know, it, it started with heroin. It was mainly heroin, then fentanyl mixed in. A lot of the heroin was laced with fentanyl. Then you have standalone fentanyl. And now the trajectory is that fentanyl surpassed heroin. This is not a healthcare discussion. I mean, even if you agree, you know, that addiction somehow transitions people from Oxycontin to this stuff, which we'll discuss in a minute, it's really the opposite. It's the druggies that are always into drugs. They'll abuse the Oxycontin, not normal people for the most part that just have physiological, you know, issues that have to take, you know, temporary prescriptions. Somehow they get into heroin unless the government forces them into it. Um, but with fentanyl, I mean, that's that's almost a weapon of mass dis- destruction. Now you have car fentanyl, which is 100 times stronger. You can't even get near it without dying. I mean, you know, it's as if Saddam Hussein came to our border and said, I'm going to launch nerve agent against your country, and we make this an HHS issue. It's not an HHS issue. It's a DOT issue. It's a DHS issue. Um, you know, kind of like apprehend the arsonists and deal with the forest fire stop going after fire coming out of stove tops in homes um so i think that's the point you're making that the government it's hard to escape the conclusion that they're trying to obfuscate the truth because i had the same experience when they came out with the report that uh, emergency room visits due to overdoses increased by 30 percent from september 2016 to september 2017 and they had all sorts of demographic breakdowns but the one thing they wouldn't break down is what type of drug was it (laughs) <laughs> was it the illicit stuff or was it was it, you know, people like John Lilly, you know, prescribing Oxycontin? I, I just found that astounding. But um I think what we're seeing on a state level where they do have the data, they make it clear a prescriptions have gone down and they've gone down before the crisis. They were going down. The uh, the deaths kind of stagnated and now are going down while the illicit drugs deaths are skyrocketing. Exactly. They kind of uh, said, well, we weren't exactly doing this correctly last month in an editorial in the American Journal of Public Health. There were four of the researchers that came out and said, well, we've been prescribed, we've been lumping the T40.4, which includes fentanyl, in with the other prescription ones. So now we're going to break it out and do it a little differently. We're going to call the first two categories that really are prescription opioids, we're going to call those the prescription ones. And the one that is has fentanyl, we're going to set that out by itself and say, no, that's not prescription fentanyl. When in reality, some of that is. They came out last uh, Friday, the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report was essentially uh, the, the previous month's Editorial is now they're in fact uh, owning up to it and separating out 
uh, fentanyl, but that does not give you a true picture of the prescription Mm. ones because they're still, they're lumping all of T40.4 into one category. They also talk about opioids and they, they tend to lump heroin, prescription drugs, lump all opioids into one and give you a number. Wow. In this, in this morbidity and mortality weekly report, they did that and said all opioids had in 2016 had 42,200 deaths. So they throw that out there and, and try to get you to think, oh, this is prescription things. No, because that also includes all of the illegal drugs. Exactly. If you look at the, the way they calculated their prescription opioids, 2016, they had 17,100 deaths. Heroin was 15,500, and that's out of the CDC Wonder database, so that's uh, a correct number. Their number for the illicit fentanyl was 19,400, but that's all of that one category. The way I calculated it, by breaking that one category down into prescription and illicit fentanyl, uh, the prescription opioid deaths in 2016 were only 16,800, a little less than theirs, and the illicit fentanyl deaths were 15,600. 15,600. So the the numbers you got total from prescription opioids out of the big number from uh, we don't have 2017 federal data, a lot of states to have data. um, And they're abundantly clear that what I'm seeing is from 2017 and all the hardest hit states, basically 80 to 90 percent are illicit drug deaths um, where, you know, whereas maybe 15 percent are from oxycodone and and um, uh, you know, uh, you know, other prescription opioids, but on a federal level, it was sixty four thousand drug overdoses in in uh, um, twenty sixteen, more than twice the number of fatalities from car accidents. It made a lot of headlines. But my understanding, is, my understanding is your number is that basically roughly like six, sixteen thousand eight hundred are due to prescription opioids, which in a minute we'll right. see is less than that probably. Right. So about 60,800. Um, and then, so, I mean, look, you know, we already have in the April issue of the American Journal of Public Health, the CDC researchers there had to do a mea culpa without kind of admitting it, that, quote, although opioid-involved deaths were at their greatest levels ever in 2016, prescription opioid-involved deaths estimated more conservatively – estimated more conservatively, I love that, have leveled off since 2012. So what that tells me, it's not just like, okay, the epidemic levels were kind of both, but then the prescription's now leveling off. The prescription never took off in the entirety of the epidemic, which started in 2012, 2013. Around then, it was all illicit. Um, My question to you is this. So 16,800 or so were at least, it was reported by toxicology reports due to prescriptions such as oxycodone, hydrocodone. Um, Fine. Now, that's roughly the baseline we've had the last 15 years with a slight increase, right? There's no increase there. But in fact, it's likely it's going down because isn't it true that 
you know, I'm, I'm reading here from Sally Sattel at Politico, and I'm going to uh, qu- quote it in show notes, a link to the article, very informative article, one of the few good ones I've seen written on this issue, that according to the government's massive national survey of drug use, more than three-fourths of those who misuse pain medication. So now we've already established that three-fourths were straight-up heroin, fentanyl, and by the way, increase in meth and um, cocaine, which aren't even opioids as well, which shows that it's a general drug problem, not just an opioid problem. It's an illicit drug problem. But three-fourths of the one-quarter, three-fourths of the prescriptions um, had already abused other drugs they were either mixed with alcohol, mixed with heroin, and often, and I'm seeing this personally with a lot of my research on a state level, um, mixed with the benzodiazepines, the the, the sleeping um, sleeping pills and things like that. So doesn't that demonstrate that, in fact, there's no seamless gateway from OxyContin to heroin it's the same people that always had the culture of you know issues and 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 what she says here is they simultaneously face other medical problems such such as depression anxiety mental health conditions drug or alcohol abuse and i don't want to you know say they're bad people that you know they're, they're they're problems but that's very different from telling me someone is perfectly mentally emotionally healthy they just had a you know a physical accident. They broke a leg or had a chronic illness. They got oxycontin. And they're like, man, my brain's done. I need my opioids, and I'm gonna go get me get me some heroin. I mean, is that in fact what's happening here? I I would agree. I would agree with that. There is another way to look at the um, the deaths due to heroin and opioids. You can actually do a CDC wonder uh, inquiry and ask it if somebody took one of the prescription opioids, did they also have heroin on the death certificate? And again, mm. just look at the death certificates. Did they also have heroin on the death certificates? And if you run that, that was virtually, it was tiny. It was virtually zero up until the last few years when it started to go up. And that's because it was heroin and the illicit fentanyl that's not separated on the death certificates. Heroin Mm. and illicit fentanyl started that to go up. So just looking at the the death rates, you don't see uh, deaths with a lot of opioids and heroin on it. And also, I'm, what I'm noticing from the data is that, look, while obviously it's affected all age groups, still the biggest um, increase, so by far, um, and this is, you know, this is CDC data I have in my article here, in heroin overdoses has been age 18 to 25. So you're not going to tell me, you know, you could have, obviously, an 18 to 25-year-old with an accident or an illness that they're prescribed painkillers. But for the most part, what that clearly tells you is that it's a, you know, a cultural thing, the same cultural factors that get, you know, our our youngsters involved in the, in the, in the drug culture. Uh, When you flooded the country with this massive influx of cheap, pure heroin. And I explain how that happened and why it happened when it happened uh, in 2013, 2015 with the, with the drug cartels and MS 13 and the UACs. But 
it's it's a supply side availability issue. It has nothing to do with doctors prescribing too much oxycodone when when a person needs it. I I heartily agree with that. If you look at you can break it down by age also on the CDC Wonder database. And I looked at the uh, fentanyl, the the one category that includes fentanyl. What has it done over since 2000? And up until 2013, the majority of deaths were in the 40 to 54 age group. Those are the ones that are going to be getting uh, prescription pain patches. Those ones are going to be abusing that. Starting in about 2012 and then going up, the, it switched to the, uh, the 25 uh, or tw- 20 to 35-year-old age group. Those were the majority of deaths because that's who's using the illicit fentanyl. Exactly, exactly. And by the way, just for our listeners, um, you know, when you talk about illicit and, and prescription, I mean, fentanyl is, is very rarely, my understanding, it's very rarely used. It, it's mainly in the hospitals for, what, chronically ill uh, cancer patients it, or hospice? It is. It's used somewhat in the outpatient setting because it is It's used a lot in uh, the hospital because it can't – it's – it has been the only it has not been a pill in the uh, the outpatient setting. It is the, and the easiest way. One of the reasons is such tiny amounts. Uh, it uses tiny amounts that it is fifty to hundred times more potent than morphine. Wow! So you don't need much. the The patches that we use uh, deliver from 25 to 100 micrograms per hour. So <laughs> micrograms. you're getting micrograms, not milligrams, but micrograms. So you're getting tiny doses of it, and they, that's why they put it in a patch so you could control. Yeah. It doesn't take much to overdose you. So that was a way to control it. Um, and, in fact, it is it is so potent when they manufacture it one kilogram of fentanyl can make one million pills. Wow. Wow, which is why they say when they caught from the Sinaloa cartel that cachet in Boston a couple months ago, it was enough to wipe out the entire state of Massachusetts. Um, yes. With overdoses. But but to be clear, what, what I've seen in my research from the um, Drug Enforcement Administration, DEA, they were very clear that none of that's being diverted. When you see fentanyl deaths, that is from the China-Mexico problem. And even, and I said before, even from China, you know, some of it does come directly from China in the mail, but it is distributed from the robust Mexican cartels and their gang network in America that was proliferated after Obama's second term. Um, You know, it's not diverted. It's not like, like, you know, with oxycodone that has gone on the black market from, you know, the medical profession, whereas with, with fentanyl, that's all, at least at this point, there's no evidence of hospitals losing control of that or for whatever reason that being peddled um, from the American healthcare system. It's, it's from China and Correct. Mexico. Correct. The uh, prior to 2013, again, it was on, it was the, the lowest of the three categories 
and it was again if it's on a death certificate you can have uh, hydrocodone and fentanyl and it's not unusual to prescribe for chronic pain patients the fentanyl patch and you also give them some hydrocodone or oxycodone for breakthrough pain so if somebody overdosed on it if they took too much and they died and they did a toxicology screen they would see the fentanyl but they would also see the hydrocodone or the oxycodone it may have been the hydrocodone or the oxycodone that killed them but the fentanyl shows up so Ah. that goes into that report and all these numbers because you can have multiple causes of death on one death certificate all of these numbers are kind of overstating the exact number because this is looking at um, of uh, things on death certificates. Yeah. So it no, it's probably not the fentanyl. You didn't have because it was in patch form. Now I've heard of people chewing the patches and things like that. But it the the surge of illicit fentanyl is because they put it in pill form, and it can be. And one of the reasons that's so deadly is it's such a tiny amount. Mm. You vary that amount in the pill. And I, I, I guarantee you those drug labs are not uh, doing some fancy thing to make sure they have the exact amount of fentanyl in each pill. There's probably a tremendous variation from one pill to another pill. And you get exactly. a, a few that are really heavy with the fentanyl, and that'll kill you. It, it, it will. And that's why I would say even my libertarian friends are like, Daniel, I don't have no appetite for your war on drugs here. Well, I mean, we're not talking about marijuana here. We're talking about and that's the thing. They always talk about the supply of the market that look when there's a demand, when there's a will, there's a way they're going to get it. This is WMD because most of the people, it's very clear. They don't even mean to a lot of times they don't even know it's in there. They lace the heroin with it. And by the way, since we spoke last over the phone, I was telling you about border agents telling me that they're seeing signs of um, uh, a fentanyl laced marijuana which would be game over. I mean, that would you know, poison the hell out of this country with, with you know, marijuana being so widespread now. But what I, I haven't seen so much of that in the media, but what I have seen since then in the media is fentanyl-laced uh, cocaine. Because, um, again, oh. co- cocaine has, has skyrocketed in this country as well. Because, again, it's not an opioid problem. It's a broad, illicit drug problem. And all of that stuff, the opioid ba- opiate-based, non-opiate-based, has come in. So, um, you know, again, I mean, you, you could you could clamp down on your prescription opioids from now until tomorrow. There's nothing to do with what's going on. No, it doesn't. And the and the the uh, uh, Congress in in the House, they two weeks ago they had a big two day uh, hearing on the opioid crisis, and most of the people that were testifying were groups that were getting their funding through grants from the government. So, you know, naturally <laughs> they're going to go up and say, oh, we got this horrible problem. Uh, can you give me some more money? It, it, it's unbelievable. It's like, I mean, again, l- let's say somehow anesthesia starts getting diverted and, you know, people start using it. Are, are we now going to do surgery without anesthesia? 
I mean, it literally has nothing to do with anything. And and what I'm seeing is even the oxycodone, um, again, you know, so we said a lot of these are really mixed with other things. Um, you know, they're they're general drug abusers. They're not users. It's not, you know, there's no 80% proclivity of, of someone somehow getting addicted to it. But what I'm seeing is a step further than that. Um, and that's this, that basically... Even among the deaths that were attributed to prescription drugs, the term prescription is very loaded. It means prescription, meaning they're commonly prescribed by a doctor as opposed to heroin, which is not. But it doesn't mean that the prescription drugs were prescribed. And in fact, um, according to that same federal survey, National Survey on Drug Use, um, only 22% of those who misuse prescription pain relievers got it from their doctor. And a whole number of them got it on an illegal market. You know, it has been diverted. It's it's a legal market. But that's not Dr. John Lilly's problem. <laughs> you know, how is it going to help by saying you can't prescribe as much, you know, when you feel you need it in your doctor-patient relationship because some, you know, drug addicts are you know, peddling oxycodone on the streets. Right. And I'm very familiar with the uh, National Survey on Drug Use and Health because the whole premise of the prescription drug monitoring program was we have to stop doctor shopping, which is someone going to more than one physician getting a prescription for uh, hydrocodone, oxycodone, some narcotic, and taking it to more than one pharmacy so they could get a whole bunch of it and then take that out and sell it on the street. They have been saying, this is the problem, and we have to we have to have the prescription drug monitoring program to stop that. The National Survey on Drug Use and Health uh, in 2016 had a specific question for that. There were actually two questions. And it was, where did you if you misuse uh, narcotic pain medicine? Where did you get it? And only 1.4% of those people got it, got it from more than one doctor. For, over 40% got it from a friend or relative for free. And they then asked, where did they get that friend or relative? Where did they get it? And it was only 0.8% mm. that got it from more than one doctor. So the total that got it from doctor shopping is 1.7%. 68.5 of them got it from wow. one doctor, either themselves or from a friend or relative. They either took it, got it for free, or bought it. So the vast majority of the misuse of pain medicine is coming from one doctor, either yourself or you go to grandma's house and steal some of hers, or you ask a buddy for it, and he gives you a few pills, but it's, it is being misused because you are using it not as written on the prescription, but some other way. And yep. it, I believe it was only 11% that were getting it by stealing it or off the Internet uh, or from a stranger. Yeah, I mean, it, it's mainly it's peddled like heroin. Um, you know, I saw yeah. in a DEA report on West Virginia, joint with one of the local universities, it was a joint uh, uh, publication, that 
the same way you have, you know, you have the primary trafficking from Mexico to the big hubs in Detroit and Cincinnati for that region. And then um, the secondary trafficking that brings them in, you know, they could be all sorts. They could be, you know, you know, they could be Americans that bring them into West Virginia. The same way they bring in the heroin and the fentanyl and the cocaine and meth, they bring in oxycodone and, and things like that. They That has been diverted. So taking it out of the hospitals is not, again, that's going after the stoves when you have the raging forest fire. Um, so th- this whole thing doesn't make any sense. And by the way, you know, the thing is, I'm looking at my report now. I can't even remember all the things I've written on this. There's just probably uh, 8,000 words worth of articles I've had. According to that same DA report in West Virginia, right, the worst overdose state, 61% of the fatalities in 2015 were from illicit pharmaceutical drugs. So again, this is not even the part that's from the, you know, again, the Oxycontin as opposed to heroin. It's from, it's, it's peddled illicitly. Um, it has nothing to do with the doctors. And you know what's funny? I haven't gotten to this part. This was going to be the, my last part in the series. But the amalgamation of open borders and Medicaid expansion uh, that created the crisis 2013. Because to the extent we have a problem on the prescription side, think about this. I want to get your thoughts, John. 61% of fatalities were from illicit pharmaceutical drugs in West Virginia. At the same time, 71% of all the fatalities in West Virginia, I believe that was in 2016, this second number of giving, were Medicaid patients. You just cited the report um, from the federal government that most of the prescriptions that they wind up getting when they abuse is from someone else. What I've seen from congressional testimony from Ron Johnson's committee, uh, for several people that have given testimony on Medicaid's role in this, is that Medicaid's freebie allows people just to buy, you know, just get an excess amount of this stuff than they would otherwise need. They don't have to pay a dime for it, and then they give it away to other people. So to the extent there might be some issues on the healthcare side of this, it's the government doing it. And I can tell you in Missouri, I don't know about the other states, but in Missouri, uh, Medicaid is 50 cents per prescription. It doesn't matter what the prescription is. (laughs) They can get a prescription for 50 cents. And I have had patients that came to me and said, uh, no, I don't have any insurance. And, you know, I've got this back pain or whatever and wanted uh pain medicine. And I might have given them a uh, one or two prescriptions. I you haven't come back. But then you find out that they, they were lying to you because they really had Medicaid. So they would take that prescription and rather than paying a the the cash price, which which may be, uh, you know, 60, 80, 100 dollars sure. for that, they pay 50 cents. They use their Medicaid card, pay 50 cents for it. They can take that out on the street, and they got a thousand dollars worth of drugs that they can sell on the street. Yep, 
there's there's your drug trafficking i mean look in the look in the mirror and and this is not to refute your point i mean your your point was said you you were saying before about the doctor shopping that basically so it's not politically correct to say doctors suck and we need to monitor you so they say no 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 you guys are awesome but here's the deal you're going to have unscrupulous patients that doctor shop and you might not know they're not going to tell you so we need a monitoring program but here, here's right. the thing, and, and you pointed out that it's a small percentage nationally, you know, less than 2%. But what I have noticed is in a state like West Virginia, it was pretty prominent among the, the decedents, the, the fatalities um, in 2016 in a state like West Virginia. And then it, it hit me when I read that same report and it said 71% of those dudes – like something like twenty five percent doctor shopped, so it was a lot more than two percent. Twenty five percent did in West Virginia among the decedents, um, and so, but seventy one percent were on Medicaid. Now West Virginia has a lot of people on Medicaid, but that, it's about twenty twenty two percent of the population. Seventy one percent of them of the fatalities were on Medicaid, and th- there's your issue. So go monitor your own stupid Medicaid program. Um, you know, where you basically shove free stuff at people. And again, when you take a population like that, that's broadly overlaps with the population that has long had issues with, um, you know, Medicaid dependency, poor health habits, drug use. And then all of a sudden, da, 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 2013, 2014, that's when the Medicaid expansion was implemented to able-bodied adults. They had massive access. So rather, this is a refutation to the other side, rather than, no, the stupid pharmaceutical oxycontin being a seamless gateway into heroin. No, it was the same meth and cocaine users that you always had, really, meth in, in West Virginia, and then heroin. They also, if you're an abuser, you're going to abuse everything. It was the other way. It was a gateway into abusing the prescription stuff as well, now that you had an endless free supply this is unbelievable case of the arsonist being the firefighter absolutely uh if you look at the cdc wonder database uh, west virginia in 2016 if you do it the old way and include all of the the fentanyl as a prescription drug they had uh 43 deaths per 100,000 population, which is huge. (laughs) If you do it the way I did it, it's down to 20-something. Missouri's was, uh, it was 13. Yeah, a lot less. We're in the middle of that. So the, the whole prescription drug monitoring program, and that's where I got interested in this, because Missouri was the last state, uh, and we haven't done it. We've done it, they, thanks to Claire McCaskill, they slipped a uh, amendment into a bill back in 2016 that allows the Department of Justice to give grants to uh, municipalities at the county and city level. And so that's how they got started in Missouri. They just bypassed the state government and went right to, they went to St. Louis County and said, here, will you manage this? And it spread to, they now have a city or countywide prescription drug monitoring program in, I believe it's 30 some uh, counties and uh, about 20 cities. Uh, so it, it reaches about 70% 
of the state's population. So they just went around the state of Missouri. Uh, but I, I got interested in that because if you look at the number of states that have an operational prescription drug monitoring program, there were 16 in 2000, there were 21 in 2005, 34 in 2010, and by 2014, it was every state and the District of Columbia, uh, except for Missouri. And the death rate per 100,000 population went from 1.54 in 2000 to 3.68 to 5.36 to 5.23, by my corrected calculation, in 2014. So the death rate's gone up uh, with the prescription drug monitoring so obviously they don't work Uh, you know this reminds me of the gun debate like monitoring the law-abiding gun owners and if you remember during the obama administration they weren't prosecuting gun felons and indeed obama let out several hundred convicted gun felons from prison but then oh let me have some gun control universal background checks it's literally the same thing i mean you know a lot of people when i say this is a border issue it's a mexican cartel issue so then they'll inevitably throw at me all sorts of stories of pill mill doctors. I'm like, look, if you have a doctor drug trafficking, he's like a Mexican drug cartel. He's in the same boat. So prosecute him. But what is it? What, what help does it do to go after regular law abiding doctors and clamp down on prescriptions? Um, you know, when, all you're going to do is cause pain to the legitimate people that, that actually need it. And then, and then worse off, here's my question to you. I believe there's no evidence that legitimate prescriptions have led to widespread addiction that brought people into heroin because it literally makes no sense that that would happen in, in one year. That would be a broad long-term trend. It would never happen. 2013, 2014, all of a sudden people are like, screw that Oxycontin. I'm going for the heroin. But isn't it true that the way we're headed now, if you don't do anything on the supply side of the illicit drugs, And then you have the worst policy prescription mix of taking the drugs out of the hospital, put them on the streets, kind of like Baltimore for crime, you know, like take the guns out of the law-abiding citizens' hands and then, uh, you know, let the criminals out on the streets, which is what they do here. And it's it's become the – it literally became the murder capital of the country. So you you take the morphine out of of medicine, but then you put it on the streets – Aren't we then going to have a self-fulfilling prophecy that people that are very desperate are going to go to the listed market? Absolutely, especially since the government, the CDC, came out two years ago and had a, these are our guidelines for opioid pain medicine. And they said not more than 50 morphine milliequivalents per day. If you've got some acute problem, not more than 90 morphine milliequivalents a day. I have a fair number of, and there's a, let me preface this by saying there are a lot of doctors that will not prescribe opioids. They are scared to death of them. And they say, no, if you, if you're, if you are a chronic pain patient, go somewhere else. I'm not going to prescribe. Pain medicine. That's so sad. And you're saying that's all because of the government. Yes. 
And those of us that do say, okay, I will treat patients. There are a lot of patients that have chronic pain. They've had bad backs. They have, uh, I've seen a lot of failed back surgeries. Uh, there are many reasons for people to be on chronic pain medicine. And most of them, you find something that they can live on. Now, they are not, and they will admit, I am not pain-free, but I am at a point where I can do most of my daily activities yeah. without being in severe pain. And there are a fair number of those that are on more than 50 morphine milliequivalents a day. I know a lot of them are up 100, 200, 300, a few of them that are on more than 1,000 morphine milliequivalents a day, and they've been that way for years. If it comes to where I can't, I, the government will not allow, allow me to prescribe that amount, guess where they're going to go? They're going to go, you know, they're not going to say, well, I guess I'll get the, just give this up. They're going to go to the street. Wow. And now, you're, you know, they're going to go to the heroin. And now you're going to have even more deaths because you have no quality control, obviously, on the street. That's why you're getting so many. Which is what's happening now already. Yes, it's happening now. And then it'll, it'll be even worse. So those millions of people, well, I can see those millions of people uh, getting their pitchforks and if, if this, if it comes to that, and I told, I've told a lot of my patients, I said, you know, you should have been at some of these hearings and talking to politicians before now, and they just don't real, oh, wow. really. If when it gets to where I can't prescribe it and they can't get it, they'll be on the politicians' doorsteps the next day. So I got a feeling if if the if the CD if Medicare really does uh, force doctors to a, a this is as much as you can prescribe, period, that all heck's going to break loose within a month. Yeah, I mean, I saw that they they want to prescribe that, and and um, it's it's a part of some of these bills. I'm gonna we're gonna watch it closely here for our listeners at Conservative Review. Um, you know, the House ENC committee marked up 22 bills. They plan on bringing them to the floor in May. Uh, I'm just seeing right now the director of what's her name, um, Francis Collins, the director of National Institutes of Health, came out with their uh, what do they call it? Uh, heal helping to end addiction long term um and, and i'm reading everything and, and i look there's a fourfold increase since 2000 again we, we just discussed for an hour what it is they don't discuss it <laughs> the focus of these discussions is centered on ways to reduce over prescription of opioids accelerate development of effective non-opioid therapies for pain and provide more flexible options for treating opioid addiction um, let me just first go down the list. Are there so the other side saying that there's some alternatives? So, what's your feeling on what? What's the you know medical science behind this? Uh, um, what do they call them? Addiction de abuse deterrent formulations of these drugs or alternatives? You know, well the the, the alternatives that they're talking about, and there are some. Uh, some pain clinics that are usually anesthesiologists, and they can do some injections, uh, steroid injections, different kinds of injections. I have seen for my patients a real mixed bag on that. Sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. 
uh, it is not a a a, a good. You know, it's, it's not like ninety nine percent of the people get good pain relief from you know these other injections. I'd be surprised if it's more than fifty percent. Uh, they say, well, you can mm. do physical therapy, you can do uh, acupuncture and stuff like People that are on 300 morphine milliequivalents a day are not going to get pain relief from acupuncture. Okay, so uh, can I just put this to bed? I, I, needed, I need to hear it from, from a doctor because um, I, I see this from people on the other side of this debate. They say this stuff is a pile of crap. It's poisoning our people, and Tylenol works better. <laughs> so oh. could, could we? I mean, am I missing something? Yeah, because the the lower doses of hydrocodone oxycodone, two of the most common uh, pain medicines we have, have Tylenol in them because Tylenol actually helps them work a little bit better. Once you get to the higher doses, you know, that's kind of overshadowed. But the people, the chronic pain patients, and, I, and, you know, I get some patients that I'm a little suspicious of, and we have what there are ways other than a prescription drug monitoring program to figure out whether people are legitimate or not. And, you know, I've got a lot of legitimate pain patients, and they, they will tell you, I do not live pain-free. I have mm. pain all the time, but this allows me to function. And, it, and some people, it takes months, sometimes years, to find the right combination of narcotics and how, and how to do it in the correct amount to get them to say, okay, I'm at least somewhat comfortable. I can function with the pain. And those are people you're not going to get an alternative to that. So, so, th so that's I mean that's very interesting. And and you're saying just to be clear that there's nothing magical that's inherent chemically in in oxy. Let's say oxycodone. Let's 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 use that one. That is an example that will on a large scale irretrievably make people addicted to them. Correct. Because yeah, I mean, and, and so so let me let me ask you, you yeah. Go ahead. Now I, I just wanna I, before I forget, I've been meaning to ask you this offline forever. Um, th th this is what the other side throws at me, and to to me it doesn't. Uh, the the data we have is irrefutable. This is an illicit problem. But it's always interesting to compare other countries. And recently, I think it, I saw it last week, maybe it was from two weeks ago, Washington Post article. I could send it to you afterwards. Um, United Nations data for 2012 to 2014, not that I trust their data, show that standard daily doses of opioids consumed per capita are roughly comparable in Italy and France at about 6,000, 8,000 each, but a staggering 50,000 in the United States. In other words, despite suffering chronic pain at a similar rate as Italians and the French, Americans consume six to eight times as many opioid painkillers. Do you buy that? or And if that's true, what, what, what would be the factors behind that? Well, I would have to look at the raw numbers of that. Uh, I know that there are some countries like Japan, there are some countries that, uh, and I think it was Japan, some countries that frown on, on prescriptions, they'll find other ways to deal with it. 
uh, or they'll just be in pain. Um, I know that hydrocodone is almost exclusively in the U.S. Other countries, and, and that's the weakest of all of the narco- of the sure. opioids is hydrocodone. Um, if it was, I'd have to look to see if, if that is a per capita basis or if that is an, an aggregate data. Because uh, I've seen graphs of, yeah, the U.S. consumes a whole lot more uh, narcotic pain medicine than other countries. Uh, I think part of that may be cultural. Uh-huh. Um, part, part of that may be because other countries that have uh, a, a heavier regulated and a state-run health system, they just won't give you any pain medicine. or You just don't get much. They're Which is where we're headed. I mean, well, from, what, we're well, from what you're describing, I mean, to, to be clear, um, it, it's a two-pronged thing. There's statutory regulations by the states, and, and, and there's legislation to make it federal. But then I think what you're mentioning is with Medicaid. So, unfortunately, we don't have a market in healthcare. I mean, that's the joke because on the one hand, we do have private in America, but it's not – It's you know, it's what I call venture socialism. It's a mix of, of government funding. So, basically um, – Everyone's dependent on either a government program like Medicare or so-called private insurance, which is propped up by the government through endless subsidies and you know interventions. I mean, certainly post-Obamacare, um, 85% of people in the individual market are getting subsidies. It's astounding. I just saw that from CMS. And uh, so that's where the money is. So even if you don't have a statutory reg – you could, you know, they could cut it off by just saying we're not covering it. And, sure. And I, yeah, I've got patients now that have private insurance, but they have some uh, number. They've got uh, they, the insurance company may come back and say, no, you can only get 180 of whatever pain pill you're getting a month. You can't get more than that. And Medicare is the 800-pound gorilla in the room because a lot of what it dictates, the insurance companies will then follow. So the, the it, it falls to where the, the Medicare regulations end up being uh, institutionalized sure. throughout all of the healthcare system. So we, we almost have a de facto national healthcare system. Yep, I mean we we talk about this all the time when we talk about healthcare here. People say, "I don't want single payer." And then, you know, we're forced to defend the American system against the Europeans as, as if this is free market and we have to This is yeah. this is single payer because um what a lot of people don't realize is most of the government programs are managed care. What's private isn't really private and what's public isn't really public. It's one government insurance cartel. So, Aetna, United Health, Anthem they control a lot of – 75% of the Medicaid. Everyone thinks, oh, Medicare. Oh, okay, that, that, that's a public program. But that's that's run largely by the cartel, um, not the Mexican drug cartel, but the, the uh, insurance cartel. So it's not just that they take their cues. Some of it is they're bound by it because yeah. they manage the Medicare products. Even – even uh, self-insured, I think Missouri has uh, roughly half of the uh, people that are covered by uh, private 
health and non-governmental health insurance is through self-funded programs. So large companies like the system I work for, we're self-insured, but we have a uh, we now have an insurance um, that uh, a company that manages it. So and and we end up doing following you know insurance leads. <laughs> So it's it's not like it's it's any anything private that we can do completely yep. separately. The two areas of of healthcare that are uh, really private that the government doesn't have anything to do about are the ones that people pay out of pocket, which is pl- uh, plastic surgery and LASIK surgery. Yep. If you look at those two areas, the prices have either been going down or if they're staying constant the uh, quality has been skyrocketing. So that choice of competition, baby, when you have competition. And and that's what's scary. I mean, this is a good, I, I, you know, we, we approach this from the border perspective, from the so-called, you know, opioid crisis and telling the truth and how government's misdiagnosing and making it worse. But I think our, our, our discussion here is also very useful to our broad series on healthcare in general, how it's not just the pricing. It's not just the fact that the government market distortions and intervention, the government created monopoly for an insurance health conglomerate cartel in this country on the insurer side, on the pharmaceutical side, the PMBs, the middlemen, this entire cesspool of a bureaucracy that we have, which is not free market at all, um, inflates the cost. Well, okay, that's that's one part of it, but the quality, and that's what's scary to think that we're going to start losing that freedom, the freedom to practice, the freedom to have a contract with your doctor. Um, and that that's what really scares me here that, you know, I want the best science dictating the best clinical practices. And instead, it's all like, you know, a domino effect of cause and effect from government market interventions that's all political that's going to start dictating how much you could prescribe and for what across the board. Exactly. And I, I think that um, if, it's, if it comes to opioids, now, you know, it's right now it's opioids, but I think it's, you know, in the, in the future it's just going to get worse. The, in fact, the, the prescription drug monitoring program, they now have uh, 47 states are interconnected. So they've almost got a national prescription drug database network in place, and the National Alliance for Model State Drug Laws, which was formed uh, after a President's Commission in 1993, and one of the things that they do is they push the prescription drug monitoring programs. If you look at their website, it used to be PDMP, prescription drug as in narcotic, monitoring program. If you go to their website, now everything is PMP, Prescription Monitoring Program. Mm. I think they, w- they want to go to a database where, every- where your blood pressure medicine, your diabetes wow. medicine, everything is in a national database. Wow. So I, I, I think our listeners on the face of it, understand the threat to liberty, private, you know, privacy for the patient. Could you explain from a physician's side of things, what does the 
prescription drug monitoring program do to you? What, 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 how do you interact with it on a daily basis? How does it affect your practice of medicine? Well, why do you care so well, much about it? One, uh, I, re- I guard my liberty and I will do what I can to protect my liberty. Liberty does not mean that you will not have any problems. And liberty is inherently fraught with problems. For you to have liberty, you have to have the possibility to fail. Some government says, oh, no, we can't have anybody failing. If nobody fails, you do not have freedom and liberty. So, you know, I am a strong proponent of liberty with the assumption that, yeah, you're not going to be able, you know, you will have tragic uh, instances. And I have too many government officials that say, oh, but if it just saves one life, well, how much does that one life cost in terms of the liberty of the rest of the citizens? And and the pain in lives of everyone else who are going to OD on heroin and people are going to be in unimaginable pain for, uh, forever i mean it's it's it, you know what it kind of reminds me of um you know the zero sum game like we talked about at the beginning of the show with illegal immigration the entirety of our body politic and our culture and everything is focused on the people that cross the border who aren't bad people the type that aren't bad we debate over how many who seek a better life now we have over 100 million people in mexico we have 320 million americans america is crushed by the cause and effect of open borders, as we're talking about with the drug crisis. Tens of thousands of Mexicans are killed because of the demand we create with our immigration policies for an open border that allow the drug cartels to operate. And they killed tens of thousands of people right as this drug crisis started. And their two are connected, as I note in my article. But it's all about those people. And, and, and there's no understanding that, you know, we can't do... We have to do what's just in the eyes of God. We can't do perfection. Only God could do that. But in their attempt to create a utopia, they create a living hell. And, and, that's, and that's, that's kind of the problem here. So, um, you know, just, just a quick um, technical question here. Uh, and I know we got to go. We're, we're way over time here, but this has been a very engaging discussion. I've seen a, a lot of the state data that among the so-called prescriptions, you know, non-heroin, fentanyl overdoses, the biggest overdoses in most states that I've seen have, and, and, and the trajectory is actually going up, is from these uh, benzodiazepines. Do, do you it, understand it what, is, what's behind that? That is, to some extent, I don't think... It's going up a little bit, and the, the opioids have uh, leveled off. The benzodiazepines are the deaths per 100,000. It's a lot less than the opioids. So I can, you know, it's, it's a little bit harder to, you can't overdose with those. Those are, those are tranquilizers. Those are nerve pills, uh, Valium, Xanax, and they are respiratory depressants. You take enough of those and you can depress your, yourself to where you quit breathing. Sure. So that's that's how you can uh, overdose on them. Uh, one of the you ask about the, the problems with the uh, a monitoring program. 
My fear is if you get to where you're monitoring all prescriptions, you may get to the point where someone or the, the, the uh, Congress or a judge says, you know, if you have post-traumatic, if you're taking a drug or if you have a diagnosis for post-traumatic stress disorder, mm. uh, having a firearm in your house can, be, can increase your probability of homicide or suicide. Therefore, if you are taking these medicines or if you have this diagnosis, you can't have a firearm. That is what I worry about that the one of the end results is with all these um, prescription monitoring programs and databases. Wow, you will lose you will lose the the um, the right to defend yourself. You know, and and, and it, what's amazing is. This has been a very in the weeds discussion. I hope it's been informative for all of you guys. But this is emblematic of every policy issue. This is liberalism in a nutshell. You cast a wide net on everyone's liberties and then ignore and actually exacerbate and fuel and perpetuate the narrow problem rather than training your fire on the problem, whether it's with crime and guns and, um, you know, or, or just, you know, financial problems that led to Dodd Frank and Sarbanes Oxley. Oh, there's an Enron. So let's lock up, you know, the credit market now. Let's destroy everything. This is what they do on every single issue. And it always gets into data. And, and that's my fear that if you don't target the real problem, Inevitably, you wind up casting a wide net because of the chaos, because of the crisis, which is why I'm just such a tough proponent of sovereignty and being tough on illegal immigration because, you know, you need to go after those problems. Um, they don't have liberties to come here. We do. And, you know, I'm not about to watch problems created from open borders and gender policies that are going to take away our liberties and also just harm our health care, harm our choice, and, you know, cause people to be in pain. Um, you know, any, any parting thoughts, John, before we sew up here? Um, no, I, th I think the, you know, my whole, your, and your admonition about protecting liberty, uh, you really have to, again, liberty doesn't mean you won't have uh, problems. Um, you have to have, to have liberty, you have to have the ability to fail. And it is the, the failure that makes us stronger. Um, and I would, if you want pure, if pure safety, then, you know, go to solitary confinement and you'll have, you know, 100% security and zero liberty. <laughs> Holy smokes. I, you know, I, we're already over time here, and, and I didn't mean to I, – I, we got to – I'm telling you, I'm going to get clobbered here by uh, my overlords for going so long. But I, I, I got to mention this to you. As I'm talking, Congressional Quarterly came out with a, a new article just a couple minutes ago. I talked about the House Energy and Commerce Committee dealing with it. Now, guess what? See, Congress is in pursuit of an agenda because they now have nothing to do for the remainder of the year. Senate Finance eyes action on opioid epidemic. Um, Senate Finance Committee plans to focus on the opioid epidemic when Congress returns from a two-week hiatus next week. Um, the proposals due this week address issues such as prescription drug monitoring programs, sharing data, access to health screenings, 
and information for prescribers, according to a lobbyist familiar with the talks. I mean, <laughs> there's no mention of the, of the of the 800 pound gorilla in the room, and even on the healthcare side, there's no mention of Medicaid expansion. I mean, th- th- this is what they do on every single issue. I'm just dumbfounded. Well, you raised terrific points. <laughs> I, I mean, Orrin Hatch, truly devastating. I mean, how the hell do you solve an issue that you refuse to even define its nature and its cause and its timing? I, I just don't get it. I mean, there's nothing. It's all about health care. It's literally, we have a forest fire and arsonist. Let's go take stoves out of your home. I, I, I mean, and it gets back to what you're saying. This is, there are certain things you could look at different ways. This is hard data. Hard data that the prescriptions are plummeting. They've, they've, you can't, if they go any lower, there's going to be a mass, massive shortage, massive pain. The deaths are going down. They, they were going down before the epidemic. The epidemic was exclusively illicit, exclusively an open borders issue. Um, you know, like I said, I wasn't 100% confident when I started this research. I thought it was primarily, but I'm actually changing that word because it's very clear that it went down. It stopped before the epidemic. Um, you know, we got that data now. And like I said, I think when you start seeing the state data uh, actualized in the federal system come 2017, you know, we have the 2016 data, it's going to become even clearer now that it's all pretty much a fentanyl problem. Mm. Unbelievable. Well, anyway, thanks so much uh, for joining us. And uh, we got to have you back. Well, are you willing to come back again? Oh, sure. Well, yeah, really appreciate it. Well, anyway, folks, that was Dr. John Lilly, um, you know, a liberty-minded activist in Missouri who's also a family physician and really provided us with so much insight that we needed. We'll certainly have him back. Um, there you have it. We've gone way over time. We're going to have a lot more on this and on immigration and health care this, this week. Let, let me know your comments. I'd also like to know, you know your feedback, your experience either as a doctor or a pain patient, um, you know, how you've dealt with the new government restrictions, how it's affecting you. I want to hear your stories. And, you know, this is what I'm thinking about my my citizens task forces to expose things, to put out reports and shame the government, uh, almost like a shadow government into into telling the truth on this stuff. So we're going to we're going to dog this issue like anything in the coming weeks. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 